Good evening, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Carla Hayden, Executive Director of the Pratt, and we're so pleased that you're here tonight. This program is part of a very special series, the Brown Lecture Series, and this series of discussions and lectures is made possible by a very generous gift from Eddie and Sylvia Brown and their family foundation, and we just would like to give them a hand because it's a wonderful series. Thank you. Now tonight, I'm excited that we're here to greet our special guest, Harvard Law School professor and best-selling author, Randall Kennedy. He's here to discuss his compelling new book, Sellout, The Politics of Racial Betrayal. And as the nation gets ready to turn a new chapter in its history, I believe it will be very interesting to hear the insights from Mr. Kennedy. I also want to um, just alert you to some other programs that we have that are coming up, and there are copies of Compass, which is our library's uh, newsletter, with events, and we have many things coming up in the next few weeks. We have a booksellers, uh, a bookseller. I just bought the book. Even librarians buy books. Uh, Book Lovers Breakfast, um, and that will have Nikki Giovanni and James McBride, and that um, is coming up. And also the National Book Award winner, Annette Gordon-Reed, who will talk about her book, The Hemmings of Monticello. And if you haven't um, heard about that controversy, it might be a good time uh, to get caught up. Now, to introduce our guest speaker tonight, though, is another very, very good friend of the Pratt Library. In fact, when our guest came tonight, he very graciously offered to take him on a tour, and he did a very good job of it. (laughs) He toured the library and was able to point out things. He's currently a professor at the University of Maryland Law School, and before joining the faculty, of the University of Maryland in 1974, Professor Larry Gibson practiced law in Baltimore and taught at the University of Virginia School of Law. He was reporter to the Court of Appeals of Maryland Standing Committee on Rules of Practice and Procedure. Okay. (laughs) And a member of the committee that drafts the multi-state bar exam. He served as Associate Deputy Attorney General of the United States and as a member of the Baltimore School Commissioners of Baltimore City, and he's also currently a member of the Governor's Commission to revise the Annotated Code of Maryland. And if you haven't seen that code, let me tell you, that is something. We have copies here. But also, many of you may know about his work um, internationally and nationally in helping uh, make sure that politics stays on track, and we are very appreciative of that. So we're very pleased to have him here tonight, Professor Larry Gibson. Thank you, Carla. Communities, groups, and families generally prefer tranquility and will often find it uncomfortable to discuss openly certain touchy subjects. Sometimes we uh, tacitly agree to that it's best to sweep certain matters under the rug that it is best not to wash dirty linen in public. So we are collectively agreed to leave that alone, to to not go there, even though the subject might be important. But almost inevitably, someone in the group 
will not go along with the program. Will not leave sleeping dogs lie and will insist on breaching the conspiracy of silence. This person brings the issue out in the open and forces us to discuss it in the light of day, notwithstanding the discomfort that it may cause. Once the dust has settled, we usually are better off for the exercise and have improved our understanding of the issue and of each other. You've seen this person at the family reunion. Most family members want to concentrate on the food, pleasantries, children's ages, and ignore serious family matters. Then Uncle George shows up and, sit and insists on getting into the taboo subjects. He just won't leave things alone. He asks, where's Robert getting all that money? Or, are you sure Barbara doesn't have a problem? She seems awfully skinny to me. We tend to find this person annoying. But he often provokes or instigates, if we want to be pejorative about it, a discussion of some issue that the family needs to talk about. And maybe the discussion even leads to Robert or Barbara getting some family help that they might otherwise have missed. Randall Kennedy is our scholarly Uncle George on racial issues. He repeatedly brings up, writes about, and forces us to discuss race-related matters that are controversial and touchy and, to many, uncomfortable to discuss. Now, we all know that there are serious problems with black-on-black -black crime, but we want to talk about the more general issues relating to the root causes of crime. Randall Kennedy says, no, we must confront the narrower issue and do so now. We know that affirmative action cannot and should not last forever. But for right now, we have found the diversity temporary fix and would rather get back to the timing issue later. Randall Kennedy says, no, let's discuss it now. We have known for centuries the many complexities surrounding sexual and intimate relations between blacks and whites. But it's something that's supposed to be discussed in a hush-hush tone, and we hint about it. Not one way to discuss openly. Randall Kennedy wrote a book about it. We know how ambivalent we are about the N-word. In mixed company, we don't even want to say the word. Randall Kennedy wrote a whole book about the N-word that some of us just did not know how to respond to, even in the bookstore. Do we buy it? Do we go near it? How do we ask for the book by name? 
Now with his latest book about racial portrayal, Randall Kennedy is at it again, talking about Uncle Tom's and passing and things like that. I've known about this brother for his entire career. We've actually been on programs together, but we always seem to be on a different day. Just last uh, September, at the Just the Beginning Foundation, he was the keynote speaker at the luncheon. I spoke at the dinner. So this evening is the first time that we have actually met, although we have had many mutual friends. His credentials are absolutely sterling. Princeton, Yale Law School, Rhodes Scholar, Supreme Court Justice Clerk, Harvard Law School, Randy would, in old Howard days, refer to top shelf credentials. Uh, you can read about them on the jacket of the book and on, on the outline. He is the author of several books. And we're honored to have Professor Kennedy here in Baltimore with us to discuss his most recent book, Sellout, The Politics of Racial Portrayal. This book, like all of his writings, reveals that he is an extremely bright, thorough, and thoughtful scholar. The book is easy and fun to read. Like the professor he is, Randall Kennedy explores issues and arguments and gives recognition to conflicting positions. But then Professor Kennedy professes. He expresses his bottom line positions on the key issues raised in the book. Finally, he tells the reader why he wrote the book. This explanation appears at the end of the book rather than at the more customary location at the beginning. It is my pleasure to present to you Professor Randall Kennedy. Well, first of all, um, thank you very much for that generous introduction. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate your, uh, your tour of this fabulous facility. I'd like to uh, thank the Browns for underwriting this opportunity, and I'd like to thank all those who have facilitated this gathering. And before I proceed to um, make some comments about uh, my book, Sell Out, I'd like to um, make note of two people who are in the audience because they've known me such a long time. They are classmates of mine from high school. Uh, Gosh, we've known one another for a long, long time. Bruce Fleming, Matthew Kimball, they were classmates of mine at St. Albans School for Boys. I've gone to, I've gone to, I've been very blessed to go to wonderful institutions, but there was no school that was more important to me, actually, than, uh, than my high school. I'm very happy to see Matthew and Bruce, and I really appreciate you for your coming. 
Now, I'm going to um, make four or five basic points and then turn the uh, monologue into a dialogue. I'm going to say enough to create a foundation for questions, for comments, and probably for some objections too. So here's point number one. First point that I try to make in this book, Sellout, is, is this. All groups are haunted by fear of betrayal. In fact, I mean, that's, that's the central point of the book, that any group and all groups, all groups are haunted by the fear of betrayal. So let's test that out. Uh, let's, let's, let's think of a very powerful polity, the most powerful polity in the world today is the United States of America. The United States of America. My position is the United States of America, as powerful as it is, is haunted by fear of betrayal. That's why 24 hours a day, the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Department of Justice spends a huge amount of time, effort, ferreting out people who may be engaged in what's called subversion. Uh, at various points in American history, uh, there have been um, hysteria. You think about after World War I, the Red Scare. You think about after World War II, McCarthyism. You think about our last election. Think about our last election and the time that was spent, who loves America? Why do people ask who loves America? Because there's a fear that maybe somebody seeking a high office doesn't love the country. You know, maybe you know, a Manchurian candidate. And that's a, that's a deep fear. That's the United States of America. Let's go to um, uh, organized crime family. That's a polity. That's an organization. Every organized, there, you know, there are a million, that's an exaggeration. There are scores of films that focus on the fear that organized crime families have that somebody in their midst is going to be subversive of the family. And so there's a lot of time, effort spent on, you know, ferreting out. Is this person one of us? Is this person or is this person a traitor? Is this person a sellout? Now, again, my, my theory is that every group is concerned about this. And so then I turn to black America, black Americans. Are black Americans concerned with fear of, uh, are, are black Americans fearful of betrayal. And I make the claim that, yes, black Americans are fearful of betrayal and have been throughout black American history. And a large part of the book is an effort to document that fear. So I'll just mention a couple of instances. In the um, uh, antebellum period, the era of slavery, 
I try to show over and over and over again how black Americans very concerned about the problem of betrayal. So 1829, David Walker's uh, appeal to the colored citizens of the world. Much of the book is an attack on white racism, white supremacist values. But a very substantial part of the book is a critique of black Americans, particularly black Americans who David Walker views as being in cahoots with whites who are enslaving blacks. Um, if, one, if one considers the, um, uh, uh, what was said by slave rebels, slave rebels very concerned about what they viewed as traitors in their midst. Let's go, let's, let's, let's go further. Um, early part of the 20th century. Probably the most famous black intellectual of the 20th century was who? Most famous black intellectual of the 20th century was probably W.E.B. Du Bois. Some would say Malcolm X, but I'll get to Malcolm X next. I'll get to Malcolm X next. W.E.B. Du Bois. In 1917, W.E.B. Du Bois, in the pages of the crisis, wrote a short piece called Closing Ranks. The United States had just entered World War I. W.E.B. Du Bois writes a piece in the pages of the crisis, the NAACP's great publication. And W.E.B. Du Bois says, listen, while the nation is at war, black Americans must rally around the flag and subordinate their own concerns their own just concerns to the American war effort. There were comrades of W.E.B. Du Bois's who were absolutely apoplectic. They were just so angry with Du Bois. Archibald Grimke was one, Monroe Trotter was another. Grimke in particular was angry and wrote a piece in which he called W.E.B. Du Bois a black Benedict Arnold. Now, again, I, the, the reason why this is so useful for my purposes is here's W.E.B. Du Bois. Even he was called a traitor. I mean, you know, Benedict Arnold, that's, that's a traitor. Gentleman here mentioned Malcolm X. Let's talk, let's talk Malcolm X. Of course, Malcolm X was what? Malcolm X was killed. Malcolm X was assassinated. Malcolm X was handled in the traditional way, meted out to what? Meted out to traitors. I mean, what is the conventional, what is the conventional punishment, after all, for traitors? Death. People who killed Malcolm X viewed Malcolm X as a traitor. Um, Black Panther Party. Black Panther Party. We know now that one of the ways in which the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation disrupted the Black Panther Party was by spreading rumors of people who were deemed to be sellouts, deemed to be traitors. They would spread these rumors. 
Some of these people were, in fact, killed by their comrades who suspected them of what? Selling out. Um, one could go on. Since we're talking about the, you know, we're you know, the age of Obama, people forget that early on in um, now President-elect Obama's campaign, there was concern within African-American circles Is the brother black enough? So much so that last summer, Barack Obama went to the National Association of Black Journalists to expressly confront, no, it was the summer before last, not last summer, but the summer before last, to expressly confront that allegation because he knew it could be a very damaging allegation. And he he felt that he had to confront that. My claim, in fact, is that any black American who attains substantial success faces at some point or another the allegation of selling out. After all, how did this brother get so successful? Is he playing ball? Is he collaborating? Is he selling out? Or is she selling out? So I think that, you know, the history of black Americans is, um, uh, substantiates, again, my starting point, my general point, that every group, every polity, every organization is haunted by the fear of betrayal. Now, second point. This problem is, uh, has, there are many difficulties when you think about the idea of betrayal. I'm going to mention one, but I'm not going to go very deep into it. I'm just going to mention it and put it out there for your consideration. One problem with the idea of betrayal is you have to, in order to to betray a group, You've got to be in the group. So in talking about um, sellouts in terms of black America, the issue arises, who's black? And in fact, the first chapter of my book is about the whole question of, well, who's black anyway? How do you tell if somebody's black? What are the indicia of blackness? Just suppose you have somebody who through appearance you think looks black, but you ask them and they say, oh, no, I'm not black. Well, how do you tell? How do you tell? Again, we're in the age of Obama. Remember the uh, uh, 60 Minutes interview with uh, Barack Obama two years ago and Steve Croft, the first question out of Steve Croft's mouth was, well, Mr. Obama, when did you decide to be black? And Barack Obama, and they had a back and forth on that. The whole, you know, I mean, after all, I mean, it wasn't, it didn't come from nowhere. I mean, why did the question arise? It arose because, you know, Barack Obama's mother is a, you know, white woman from Kansas. His father is, you know, black man from, from, from Kenya. I mean, why, why is he black? Why, why don't people call him white? The question actually of, who is what is actually a very complicated 
question. And um, if, if people want to discuss that a little you know, further on, I'll be happy to. But that's, that's one issue that has to be confronted on this whole question of group betrayal. Who is a member of the group? How do you attribute group membership? There's a second problem. There are many, but here's, here's the one that I, I found particularly interesting. How do you determine what constitutes betrayal? Now, you th often think that that's a simple thing, but it's not so simple. Let me give you an example. So I'm doing my research. I'm trying to come up with examples of black Americans who have been called race traitors. I'm doing my research, and I, come, I start reading about Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey, leading black nationalist figure in the the first two decades of the 20th century. Marcus Garvey was prosecuted and convicted for fraud. <laughs> Key to his prosecution was the testimony of black people who were officers in his organization the UNIA, Universal Negro Improvement Association. These officers, these officers were agents of the federal governments. They were recruited by one young J. Edgar Hoover, the first black people to be employees of what became the Federal Bureau of Investigation were agents who infiltrated the UNIA, testified against Garvey. Garvey was convicted, and then he was later deported. These agents were later asked, why did you testify against Garvey? And they said the following. They said, you know, we think, we thought that Marcus Garvey was misleading black people. We thought that Marcus Garvey was leading, was just, just, you know, leading black people over the edge, that he was a danger to black people. Now, now we confront a whole bunch of different problems. First of all, there's the whole issue of, do you believe what they say? I mean, was, I mean, that's what they said, but do you believe it? I mean, people say all sorts of things. Was that what was really motivating them, or were they just mere careerists who were just trying to do anything to, you know, make it up the greasy pole? Were they just after a paycheck? Or do you believe what they said? That raises a question. If, if you believe what they said, let's just stipulate that what they said was true. You know, let's, let's suppose that we could give them a truth serum and that under the effects of this truth serum, they said, it, you know, yeah, I, for ideological reasons, I thought that Marcus Garvey represented a, a danger to black people, and that's why I helped bring him down. If they truly believe that, it's to be a, actually a rather complicated issue. Were they engaged in racial betrayal? Or were they engaged actually in an effort to assist black people? Maybe wrongly, 
Maybe you think their judgment was a wrong judgment. But do you say that they were actually trying to betray black people? It seems to me it gets to be actually rather complicated. And by the way, if you think that their rationale was just kooky, crazy, implausible, think again. Let's go back to W.E.B. Du Bois. What did W.E.B. Du Bois say about Marcus Garvey? W.E.B. Du Bois, again, in the pages of The Crisis, wrote a piece. He wrote many pieces about Marcus Garvey, but I'll just give you the title of one. Quote, A lunatic or a traitor. Speaking of Marcus Garvey. Garvey and, and, uh, and W.B. Du Bois absolutely hated each other. There were other people as well, by the way, who expressly said that they were happy that Marcus Garvey had been prosecuted. So it seems to me the, the, the question of what was actually the state of mind of these agents becomes rather complicated, and then we, observing them, it becomes rather difficult to figure out you know, exactly how one characterizes what they were up to. The whole question of you know, what constitutes betrayal you know, sometimes gets complicated. Third point. I've already said that every group has this anxiety about betrayal, and so to a certain extent, the problem that I'm interested in is an inescapable problem. Uh, I think that there's always going to be this anxiety, and so there's always going to be this question of at what point does somebody in the group step over the line? I think it's just an inescapable problem. I also think that labeling people as traitors is very dangerous, very dangerous. I mean, after all, it's a highly stigmatized thing. You call somebody a traitor, again, remember what I said a moment ago. What's the punishment for being a traitor? Death. It's a big deal to call somebody a traitor. Let's go back to our own Constitution. What's the one crime, what's the one crime that is defined in the Constitution of the United States? Treason. Treason. Very carefully defined. Why is it carefully defined? It's carefully defined, at least in one of the reasons why it's carefully defined, is that the people writing the Constitution were themselves traitors. Of course, they were traitors to King George. But they were very concerned. No, they were very concerned with this issue of treason. And so they defined it very carefully. Um... I mentioned the Black Panther Party. Black Panther Party was destroyed in part because its ranks were infiltrated, but also in part because the organization itself actually became paranoid. The use of this label, race traitor, sellout, very, it can do a lot of damage. It can stoke paranoia. It can also have a chilling effect. 
I know this for sure. I, I, I know this for sure in my role as a teacher. I teach courses. I teach a wide variety of courses, but one course I teach year in and year out is a course on race relations law. And every year, with respect to certain topics, Professor Gibson, you mentioned affirmative action. I know what's going to happen. When I hit the affirmative action section of the course, we have very interesting discussions. I have office hours. Knock, knock, knock. Come on in. Student comes in, raises an issue, and I'll say, gosh, that was a very interesting issue. Why didn't you raise it in class? I wasn't going to raise that in class. (laughs) Well, you know, I think it would be a very interesting issue for the class to consider. If you bring it up, Professor Kennedy, do not attribute it to me. <laughs> you can bring it up, but don't attribute it to me. Well, what are you concerned about? I go to school with my classmates. I do not want to be considered a sellout. It comes up, it comes up, year in, year out. I've had, that's one way in which it comes up. Now, whether one agrees with the point that the student is making or disagrees with the point the student is making, I always, I always bring up the issue, in part you know, for purposes of clarification. You don't get clarification if ideas, important ideas, useful ideas, even if you disagree with them, are suppressed. You pay a cost for the suppression of those ideas. So I think that um, this, the, the, the label is going to be out there. It's inescapable. But I think that one should demand that if you're going to use that label, if you are going to uh, indict someone for being a sellout, in my view, you... Um, should be accountable for such a claim. And if you make such an indictment unpersuasively, in my view, you should uh, pay a very stiff reputational cost for doing that because the indictment is, uh, is so stigmatizing. Well, again, I, those, are the, those are the basic points that I try to uh, lay out uh, in the book. I'll mention two just just briefly. Um, I'll mention two people who have been on the receiving end of the sellout indictment. I'll just mention their names and then I'm going to subside and uh, we we can proceed in whichever way you'd prefer. One person who has been accused by many people of being a sellout. In fact, his name has become already, frankly, synonymous with being a sellout, is Associate Justice Clarence Thomas. I mean, if, you, if, you, if, if someone was to say right now, to, you know, if, if someone was to, if, 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 a, if a black person was talking with another black person and one black person said, you're pulling a Clarence Thomas, people would know what they were saying. And, and actually, the longest chapter in my book 
is about Justice Thomas. I'll tell you what I say. I mean, I'll just boil it down. I'm very critical. I'm very critical of Justice Thomas. At the same time, I think it is actually wrong to call him a sellout. I think it's inaccurate. I think that Justice Thomas is just, I think I disagree with him. But do I think that he is, do I think that his state of mind is one that warrants the claim that he is a traitor? No, I don't think that. I just think he's wrong. I don't think he's a traitor. I just think he's wrong. I'll tell you a second person who's been on the receiving end of uh, the uh, sellout indictment. Uh, This guy's name is Randall Kennedy. I've been talking to you for the past, you know, 20 minutes or so. Um, I've been called a sellout on actually a couple uh, of occasions. One time, I guess the last time I was called a a sellout had to do with a a, a book uh, that I wrote. It was a book called Nigger, the Strange Career of a Troublesome Word, and there were some people, including people here in Baltimore, by the way, um, who were just, you know, just thought that me giving that book that particular title was just the worst, you know, the worst thing, and that, you know, that in fact that conduct in and of itself represented uh, group betrayal. So, I mean, I think that this, this, this issue of group betrayal is abstractly an interesting topic, but I have to confess I, I, I'm also drawn to it uh, because it's a, it's a topic that I've had to grapple with, you know, in my, in my own life. All right, I'm going to subside. The floor is open to questions, comments, and again, by all means, objections. Thank you very much.